We are back, ladies and gentlemen, the In The Know Property Podcast. Spring has sprung. We're two weeks in and my goodness, the sun is shining bright through those windows right there. Daniel Beadle, good, good to see you again here, mate, my friend, my good friend. Mate, I think today what we're going to run through is a topic that I keep seeing very frequently through my social channels, which is um, how do I continue to buy property when the banks won't lend me any more money, which is essentially your serviceability. Um, and another thing that you know you, I see is people asking me question that you know asking me that that question is um, you know I'm capped. How do I keep buying? Or I'll post something and you know talk about portfolio and they say, oh, well, mm. how do you get to that size? So um, I want to talk about what you do when you hit your serviceability caps and um, and what avenues there are so you continue to, to scale your portfolio, um, you know, like I have and, and obviously like we do for our clients. So um, I just had a voice note recording for the last 40 seconds. So that'll be a good voice note. I was lucky enough to get that. Um, so look, naturally with... with um, with building a portfolio, one of the biggest restrictors you have is is obviously your servicing, which is how much income and expenses you have, and then how much debt the bank is willing to lend you. And I don't care what structures you have your you know properties in. I don't care what property investing strategy you use, whether it's positively cash flowed, and I'm using inverted commas for the people who are listening, um, or whether it's you know chasing higher growth assets. Every single person, if you do not increase your income, you are going to hit a serviceability cap. That's if your properties are set in trust. That's if your properties are set in companies. That is if your property is set in your personal name. You will hit a serviceability limit. So if that's the case, how do we maximize the available servicing that we have? And uh, how can we you know, be a little bit creative and, and go ahead and, and keep buying property where we can maximize some servicing that we're maybe not thinking about? So... The one that I use and I'm a big believer in is doing joint ventures, not just in property, but in lots of things in life. You know, if you've got a skill set or you've got mm. something that another person wants but doesn't have and they've got the thing that you want but you don't have, you know, I think it's beautiful to bring those two things together to be able to create something that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to create if you didn't have mm. that counterpart. Now, I've used joint ventures through my investing career a lot. I'm using them now. You know, I just closed one last week. Um, and when we talk about joint ventures, you know, they don't have to be super complex. You know, that word in itself, joint venture, sounds like a, you know, strategic business deal or, or something where you got, you know, you got to be super smart to do it. You know, a very very simple joint venture, and a, and people may not have realised this, and because there's probably listeners that have actually done this, is when you're buying your first property, for example, and you know, you you buy it with your parents. Yes. That's essentially a joint venture, right? Like your parents may say, son or daughter, let's go and buy some real estate. You might be on, and I get this a lot on the social channels, you know, I'm in university or I've got a casual mm. job because I'm in uni and, you know, the banks will only lend me 300 grand. 300 grand ain't going to get you a great deal, right? But should that limit you in being able to buy a property? Definitely not. Yeah. So so you go, okay, mum and dad, I can get 300 grand. I've got a deposit sitting here enough for 300 grand. How about you guys come in and put in another you know, X amount of dollars and then give us another 300,000 of servicing and let's go buy a $600,000 property together. Mm. Super simple. What they then usually do is split the cost down the middle. So, you know, if there's a gap between the rent and the mortgage, that's covered by both parties, 50-50. If there's any expenses that need to be incurred, that's covered 50-50. And at the end of the day, if you end up selling the property one day, you split the profits or the proceeds 
Very, very simple joint venture structure. Probably no need for separate documents to be set up and, you know, all these different um, complex things. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have done that. I've personally done that myself. And I think it's a, a game changer, right? Because what you're able to do then is buy a better quality asset than what you would have been able to do on your own back. You're also hedging your risk as well because you've now got double the amount of income. If something were to ever go wrong, you know, when you couldn't afford something or do something, you've got someone to lean back on and vice versa. Um, and you're likely to get much stronger performance out of that asset now because it's better. So, you know, even if you only own half of it, I'd much rather own half of a property that's performing much stronger than all of a property that's underperforming. Hmm. What are Mate, your thoughts on that? 100% agree. I think the most underrated part of a joint venture, like you mentioned, is the bank of mum and dad. To add to Jack's point, something that we forget with mum and dad is that nine times out of 10, they own a property which has very little to no debt on it particularly people who are our age, you know, parents that have come through that baby boomer generation have quite low LVRs, which means there's significant untapped equity in their owner occupier, which isn't doing much to generate a return on their investment. So um, like Jack mentioned, it's, it's a very good tool that people who are at uni or people who may have that serviceability piece or that equity component to partner with someone who's either got like mum and dad, they have additional servicing or they've got equity in their own occupier can be a great way to launch yourself into that first or second property. And then you rely on that investment property's equity to then, you know, go through to the next purchase. hundred percent. And people, I think one of the main reasons people don't do it is because they're too proud to ask for mm. help or, you know, to, to put it together. But, you know, I think instead of asking for help, you rephrase it. Like you're putting together a business deal, you know, like, this is, this, is, this is what it's all about. This is the kind of property I want to buy. You know, I want to bring you into this very exclusive deal. Um, and that's a, that's a very, very simple way to do a joint venture. You can do it at the start of your journey, like you were saying, or why not do it after you've got three properties and the bank won't lend you any more money now? Property number four, mm. property number five, whatever it is, I've got, uh, I, you now might have the capital behind you. You might have equity in properties that you may be able to release. Let's just say, hypothetically, the bank said, yeah, we'll lend you another 200 grand, but that's it. 200 grand is not going to buy you a property, all right? Unless you're buying in the middle of bumfuck Idaho and that's not where we want to buy. Exactly. And I, I just want to add to Jack's point, guys, which is super important when you are looking at joint ventures is having some level of proof of concept. Um, we're not advising people to just go out that have no understanding of property. Say, hey, mum and dad, we've heard, you know, Logan or uh, Mackay is a great place to invest. Give us a few hundred thousand and then what ends up happening, you buy a property and it goes down in value. I think what's super important when you are doing these joint ventures is, yes, take that element of risk, but be strategic and smart about how you go approaching it. I know from Jack's experience and mine as well, before we were dipping our toes in property, we were immersing ourselves in understanding what we're investing in personally. What are, exactly your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's true. You don't want to, rob, you don't want to buy the wrong property, but... Um, we're talking about the concept of a joint venture, less about making sure that you, you buy the right property. Um, the, that, yeah, so that, that's the, the most simple one is the, the, the bank of, of mum and dad. It's mum calling me right now, actually. She must have heard, uh, heard us <laughs> talking. Um, the, the other one is you know, when you get a little bit more sophisticated now, like you might have a few properties, you understand the marketplace, you understand, you know, like you said, you've, you've got the proof of concept that you know what you're doing. And you get four or five properties in and your bank says no more money. But like I said, they might say, oh, we'll lend you 200 grand. That's, that's all you can get. 200 grand is not going to buy you a property. What it is going to do is going to give you a deposit for another property. So if you've got $200,000 through an equity release in cash, 
what you now need to do is find the person who's going to go fund the other mm. 800,000, right? So, you know, then you might go to a close friend, a close family member to say, hey, you know, you mightn't be in the market or you mightn't have the capital to buy. You're on a strong income. You've got the servicing. I've got the cash. Let's put those two things together and let's go 50-50 in a property. It's great for you because you're putting in, say, $200,000 worth of cash or 100000 or whatever is relative to your number. And you're buying 50% of a property that you wouldn't have been able to have if you didn't have the other person. And there, it's great for them because they're getting 50% of a property with no cash into the deal. But again, they wouldn't be able to buy without you and you wouldn't be able to buy without them. And then you can set up other agreements. Like if you're putting in 200,000 worth of cash, well, um, you know, you can either do a private loan on that cash to say, okay, well, I'm putting cash into the deal. We're paying 6% interest on that cash until we've got enough equity in this property to refinance my initial cash out of the deal. Um, or you could do, okay, well, I'll put the 200000 of cash in, you put the servicing in, but you cover all the expenses for the property until you've paid back 100000 of that cash because then you've put in essentially both hundred grand each, which is 50-50. Um, and that's something that you work through logically. But essentially, you know, the, the, the hypothesis of it is what do you have, what do you need, and what does that person have and what do they need? and put those two things together. And naturally, if you're doing something that's probably outside of your inner family circle, that's when you want to start going through lawyers and getting really basic joint venture, you know, um, contracts drawn up. What happens if someone, you know, what happens if you die? Yeah. What happens if you have a divorce with your partner and she's entitled or he's entitled to half of it? Um, all those kinds of things. So you put those hypotheticals on a contract and make it very, very black and white, entry and exit, what does that look like? Um, but again, you're buying another property that you wouldn't have been able to buy if you didn't use mm. a strategy like this. And something to add on, on Jack's point, I want to give you an example of a property I've got um, where I have the capacity to buy next door. And I've tried going direct to the vendors to acquire next door. My plan is to use it as a development play. Now, this is a point where joint ventures are a good tool, even if you have the capacity. What may happen to me down the track is one that once that property next door is ready to sell, um, I may not have that capacity at that point in time. So having a joint venture is a tool we can use, even if you know I could afford it today, but in ten or two years' time I can't. Having someone there to come in in the deal can help me accomplish my goals faster than dragging that on. So yep. I think. That's something to wide with the joint ventures. 100%. So the, the, they're a really important one is if, if you hit a serviceability cap, what have you got that someone else doesn't? What does someone have that you need? And join those two things together to continue to scale. And the thing with joint ventures is it's unlimited scale, right? Because mm. you know if you're an expert um, at what you do and you have a brand or, or, or you're, you're known for being good, you know, people will want to partner with you, right? Because they want access. So like someone like myself now, I reckon I could do an Instagram post and have 50 to 100 people say, yeah, I want to put some money with you, right? And that's powerful. I've got, I don't need any more money to do deals. I can mm-hmm. use everyone else's money to do deals. You look at Grant Cardone, which I'm sure a lot of pe- people know, he's obviously in the US. He's an expert in real estate, right? And all he does now is use everyone else's money to, you know, it's a two. They love it because they're getting a return. They're getting access to, to deals that they wouldn't have been able to get access to. They're getting higher returns than what they would have been able to do themselves. And Grant loves it is because he's got no cash of his own in these deals and he's using everyone else's money to, you know, grow his wealth. Um, so it's, they're very, very, very powerful. Um, the second thing that we can do when we've hit a personal serviceability cap is to look at, you know, doing a, a self-managed super fund, um, 
just a caveat, this is not financial advice, um, you know, to, to set up a self-managed super fund and to buy a property inside of that self-managed super fund. Because when banks look at servicing for super funds, they're not looking at your income and your expenses. Um, they're looking at what are your contributions to the super fund. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people can either do their minimum 10.5% or whatever it is in their employer, or they can do the maximum contributions, which I think is circa 28000 a year. Um and the rental income from the property that's going to sit inside it. So it's the contributions and the rental income that services, not your actual income, because you can only make a certain amount of contributions per year. Um, so you know, if you've hit a serviceability cap over here and you've got enough money sitting in your super fund, then you can buy a property inside of your super, which again is adding another property to the portfolio. Sure, inside a super, you don't have as much flexibility. You can't refinance and buy more properties with that. You can't actually access that money until mm. you know, you're somewhere between 60 to 65 years old, depending on when you were born. Um, but it's a very powerful way to still take advantage of leverage because you can l- still lend inside of, inside of super um, and you know, continue to scale that portfolio, which a lot of people I don't think... Um, I, don't, I don't think used to, to to its maximum 100 and it's a very underrated um point of lending is smsf loans and what i used to see quite a lot back when i was lending is that uh, a lot of the sophisticated investors would actually buy a self-managed super fund property particularly a commercial asset and then rent that asset if they had a business for example they would operate their business out of that asset and that was a way they could create further contributions to their self-managed super fund. So it's it, outside of it increasing your ability to buy property, it can also provide a tool for you as an individual to expand having contributions and also the leverage that comes about, whether if you've got a business or not, um, it's, it can provide a, a platform to be creative. Yeah, and you'd want to talk to you know professionals about setting up <laughs> self-managed super funds and all the rest of it, but obviously we're experts in property and... Um, that's another way that you can still scale the portfolio, still yep. add another property to the portfolio. And a lot of the time, like, you know, you know, usually you're not going to be able to buy in self-managed super fund until you're probably 35 to 40 years old because you're going to need, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 years worth of contributions to be able to have enough money inside a super mm. to use as a deposit. Um, but it's also going to take people 10 or so years to be able to hit their serviceability limits as well if, you know, they're, they're investing from when they're young. So... Um, you want to make sure that you've got enough money in your super and you've got enough servicing to be able to buy a good quality asset, but they're, they're very, very powerful. Um, another way that you can continue to grow the portfolio outside of going down the traditional routes is looking at things like lease stock lending, which is essentially, you know, when you go and look at a commercial property, this is more of the commercial route as opposed to looking down the residential route. Um, you go down the commercial route and the banks will actually lend based on nothing else other than the rental income and the expenses of that mm. asset. Now, naturally, the banks are calculating it at a certain interest rate. They're calculating your certain expenses and the commercial asset that you buy needs to out, you know, needs to perform at a stronger level than, than these uh, expenses for them to be able to lend to you. So they're not easy to do these things. Like they, they, they can be quite difficult and it's going to be quite difficult to find these kind of assets. But if you've got a commercial asset where it's got really strong income, so a really strong yield that well and truly outweighs the mm. um, expenses that property has from an interest perspective and an outgoings perspective, then the banks will lend purely just on that asset and they won't look at your serviceability. But you will need a larger deposit as well. You know, they're exactly. usually chasing somewhere between 30 to 35-ish percent. Um, but if you buy a million dollar property... 
a million dollar commercial asset, but you've got three hundred thousand dollars of equity that you can have access to. That you can take that equity and use that as that thirty percent deposit. Exactly, and then like Jack said, it, it cash flows itself, and you're not having to worry because you've got such a large equity base. Yeah, and and look, these are getting a little bit more sophisticated. I wouldn't just be the average punter going out there going, "Oh, go do a lease stock," eh? <laughs> you know, because you want to make sure you're making the right decision. Um, but it's a really good way to continue to grow the portfolio um, when the banks say to you, hey, there's no more money. And then I guess that the last avenue, which is um, still probably going down the traditional route, but it's just looking at your current portfolio and going, okay, well, if I hit it, I've hit a serviceability limit, um, what are these properties performed like? You know, the current properties, how are they performing? Are there some underperformers in there that are taking up some servicing some opportunity costs that maybe I can sell down, pay a little bit of tax on Hmm. and free up that capital to invest into something else. So for example, let's say that you've got a property in the portfolio that's got $500,000 worth of debt against it. And the bank says, um, with the current portfolio, we'll only lend you 400 grand. And you go, well, 400 grand's not enough to buy another property. I'm, I'm pretty much stuck here. What if you went back to the portfolio and said, okay, what's the what's an underperforming property? It's the property that's got $500,000 worth of debt against it. If I sell down that property, pay some capital gains tax on the money that I make, but then join that $500,000 of servicing to the $400,000 that the bank will lend me and now go buy a $900,000 property, again, you're increasing your asset base because mm. you've gone from having a $500,000 property to a $900,000 property. You've also then increased the quality of the asset that you're holding in that position because it's a better quality property um, and you're still continuing to grow the portfolio and you've got the same amount of properties. So, you know, that's something that I'm going to do potentially next year is is I've got a property that my first property that I bought is probably the worst property that I bought in the portfolio currently. Um, So, you know, I would go back to that if I was going to restructure it. I would go back and go, okay, let's sell down this property. Let's free up that servicing. There's probably about 800 grand against that property. It's valued at 1-1 or yeah, I think 1-1. Um, free up that, that capital and then go and invest it into something else. So mm. it's just restructuring the current portfolio to maximize the quality of the assets and to maximize the lending that you, you can have access to. Yeah, most definitely. And, and I think once you're observing that portfolio for a second time, being creative with looking at, can I manufacture some increase in rents from my existing portfolio? Can I add a granny flat to one of my mm. properties? Can I add a fourth bedroom? Can I renovate and do some cosmetic work? Exactly, yeah. Increasing your cash flow position on the current assets is, is, is a really big one. And this is, this is something that, you know, a lot of people, <clears throat> I think a lot of people go down the wrong, wrong route here. They, what they, most investors will do, or a lot of investors, not most, sorry, they will go, okay, where can we go and find a property that cash flows extremely well? Mm. And as you know, if you've listened to the podcast and listened to our staff for quite a while now, usually when you chase cash flow, you're foregoing capital growth. Um, so instead of chasing cash flow and foregoing capital growth, you still want to go down the tradition, like our, our strategy, which is buying high growth locations with a proven track record of performance. And let's just say they've got a three and a half to four and a half percent yield, right? But you've got the ability to add a granny flat to that property. You've got ability to, you know, put a second dwelling on it down the track, for example. What you should do is is build out the portfolio without, don't do that work straight away. You should buy the assets and let them grow, maximize your servicing and then go, okay, well now I've got four or five properties in the portfolio. Three of those properties, we can maximize the cash flow on them and take them from a three and a half percent yield to a 7% yield by adding the granny flat or by adding mm. the second dwelling. And then you go back to those properties and start doing that. 
Okay, so let's add a granny flat to this one. You add a granny flat, so you spend 120 grand, but it increases your cash flow by 30 grand a year or 25 grand or 20 grand a year, all of a sudden then when the banks look at your servicing, you've then got another $20,000 of income, right? Which is gonna increase your servicing. And then you do that to a second property or the third property, and all of a sudden you've just gone and created 60 or 70 grand worth of income, only increased your debt by a very small amount of money to obviously build those granny flats or build those second dwellings, and then go back to the bank and ask for more money once you've got that extra money. Mm. Yeah, Which, it's a great point, I think, um like you mentioned, it's super under... People don't think that you can also achieve getting high-yielding assets in great locations by doing things like you mentioned, adding the granny flat, increasing the cash flow for a renovation. Um, something I wanted to add as a bit of a bonus, this is going to be a bit more for the more sophisticated investors out there. And it kind of ties into the lease stock where we're talking more commercial assets or commercial lending. And that's the ability for us as strong equity holders to do what we called... Uh, loans where we can prepay or capitalize the interest. Mm -hmm. So effectively, if I'm going into a deal where there's a commercial outcome, so I'm going to do a development, or I'm going to buy something and f create a profit. There's a commercial purpose about the deal. I can go to certain funders, whether they be non-conforming or private, and actually go in and seek uh, debt and raise capital where I can hold that debt for say 12, 24 months and no not need to service that debt for that duration of time. Now, the way we end up paying our portion of debt is at after the end of us utilizing that investment for its commercial purpose. So I do a development, you know, create four townhouses or eight townhouses, for example, there's a million dollar profit. Once I've sold those apartments off, I can, oh, sorry, those townhouses off, I'll pay the funder back his $5 million debt plus a million dollars in interest. That's right, yeah. So you're essentially borrowing money and saying, I'll give you the interest for this money in two years time. Exactly. And you have no repayments during that two year period um, and you pay it as a lump sum at the end once you've done your development. So this is not this is not the kind of lending you do on a passive investment, a buy and hold. This is something that you do on yep. you know, either a major renovation or a redevelopment of an asset. Exactly. Um, but it is, is a good tool you can use on residential assets. But um, you do need to be starting to use companies or having 50% of that debt needs to be used for a commercial purpose, not for your residential home. Um, but again, it's another tool outside the box. If you've got equity sitting in a portfolio, let's say four or 500 grand, instead of that sitting there, go and buy something with private funding, just get a DA on it, increase its value by a couple hundred grand, then sell it. You know, you've made a few hundred thousand rather than leaving that. Absolutely, sitting in it. you're maximizing the maximizing the use of the money, and it can. Again, this is these are more strategic, um, and, and I would say higher mm. level strategies. But as you move through the investing journey, if you're you know, you know, super interested about investing and growing your portfolio, these are all the things that are out there at your disposal. You just have to learn about them in more detail. Um, and I guess the last one, which is, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that's going to scale the portfolio, which not many people talk about is like, is increasing your ability to earn, right? Like, why do you think that is? That people don't talk about it's it? It's never talked about. Yeah, because it's hard, right? Like, it's hard to do it. It's, the e mm. it's easy to go buy a property. You save up a little bit of money, go to the bank and ask for the rest and... Like that's easy. Getting getting a higher income, getting a higher paying job, becoming a partner of a business, starting a business, like that, that they're all hard things. So, um, but it's a thing that's going to dramatically increase your ability to mm. to 
to buy more property, right? Like that's the, the number one thing that is going to increase it because for every dollar you earn is a dollar going on top of your, your servicing ability. Um, so, you know, I think one of the big ones and it's something that I did was I maxed my portfolio from 18 to 21, 22 and, and when the bank said we're not lending you any more money and I wasn't smart enough to do any of these other strategies, I didn't know about it. My thing was, okay, well, I can't borrow any more money so the only thing that, that makes sense for me to do now is go and increase my income. And that's when I transitioned out of the mining industry into, you know, a, a career that I, I love. And then at the, well, now when you run a business, your earning capacity is unlimited because, you know, the harder you work, the bigger you grow the business, the more you earn, the more debt you can then service. And that's something that I think a lot of people need to realize is that one day you will hit a serviceability limit, even if you use all of these strategies we spoke about. Mm. Um, and if you want to continue to invest because you're not happy with the level of wealth that you're, you're, you're at, then it's time to um, you know, look at your, your personal circumstance and look at increasing your income. Um, and, and that will dramatically change your ability to, to borrow money mm. for sure. Even as something as small as just getting that second job or another income stream to boost that serviceability for when you buy that next property, you know, even if after you've bought that property, you pull the reins back, being creative. And, and I think particularly in Australia, what's easy for us to fall down the traps of is kind of going down the following what we love and, and not putting in the hard yards in the beginning to build that asset base. And we, Jack and I see it day in and day out where we'll speak to people in their later 50s, early 60s who actually haven't acquired any wealth and are now looking in the years of retirement and are thinking, what have we done? Like that we've got nothing to fall back on. And, and it's quite a, um, a reality check for a lot of people, which, you know, we're, we're young and we, we kind of put it to the side, but it's definitely the case for a lot of people. Um, for sure. Scary for getting, sure. I, I couldn't imagine getting to retirement and going, Oh fuck, I'm going to have to live off $300 a week now from the, uh, you know, the pension or something like that. Um, so income is, is, is very, very important. But I think that, that, that it's a pretty good summary to say that outside of just going to the bank or going to a broker and saying, hey, can I borrow more money? They say no. Like there's many other avenues you can go down to be able to continue to mm. grow the portfolio, to continue to leverage someone else's money um, and continue to grow your wealth that you wouldn't have been able to do if you were just waiting and going down the traditional routes. Yeah, so basically Jack and I were coming up to Newcastle this morning in the car and we'll... we'll discussing about what we're seeing in the marketplace and the concept of, of time in the market and how we're seeing live case studies of, of properties that people had bought in the top of the market and now losing significant value in the current marketplace. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think it would be a good pro a case study to kind of share. Yeah, to unpack experience. it. So we're, I, I'm obviously a huge believer in not timing the market, just staying in the market and letting it do its thing because... You know, there's, there's so many uncertainties and variables that we can't control. So there's a lot of people that bought property last year, you know, January to December last year, and you paid what we now know to be the top of the market, right? At the point in time, we didn't know because we didn't, the market was continuing to grow, but they'd bought at the top and now for one reason or another, something's changed in their life and now, now they're having to sell that property within a 12-month time frame. Um, and... You know, they, they, some people had bought the right assets too. Like they bought the really good quality assets in really good quality locations. But because they're selling it at the wrong time, they're taking huge hits. You know, there's a property that we were looking at in the inner west of Sydney, purchased last year for 1.9 million. 
And at the time, if you look at all the comparable sales, it seemed like really good value. Um, you know, we're, we're 12 months on and, and that property is now for sale at one six. So, and it hasn't sold. So, you know, we're talking about a 10 to 20% decrease in value plus the holding costs, plus mm. the selling costs of the agent, plus whatever entry costs they had like stamp duty, et cetera, to get into the property. So, you know, that, those people could be looking at a four to $500,000 hit and it's got nothing to do with the quality of the asset. It's got nothing to do with anything else other than the timing of when they bought and the timing of when they sold. Um, so, you know, I think it, it shows the relevance of not just trying to get in and out of the marketplace, but, you know, time in and how long you stay in has a huge, is a huge factor. Um, and, you know, even just looking at, I did an example on TikTok yesterday about, um, about an apartment that I own. Someone commented, oh, apartments are not good investments. You should only ever buy houses. And I countered that. We're saying, well, explain this, right? So it was an apartment that I bought. Um, I never bought it at this point in time. I've since bought it. In 2018, I purchased it. But essentially, it was purchased in 1998 for 77000 I just got it revalued by the bank only two weeks ago and the val will come in at 900000 now, over 24 years, that property went from 88, uh, sorry, 77, from 77 to 900. In 24 years. In 24 years, which is a, a, a circa um, 10.5% compounding capital growth rate, compounding capital growth rate. For people who don't know what compounding means, it goes 10% and then on... That say it goes from a million to 1.1, then 1.1 goes 10% again. And then from, you know, one and not just going 10% off the original value. Um, you know, but if you look at the timeline of that property, so if you would have bought it in in uh, in 90, uh, 98 for 77,000 and held it that 24 years, you would have, you would have taken full, um, you would have taken full control of get maximizing all of those mm. returns. But that property sold two years later in the year 2000 for $230,000, right? Now you do the returns on 22 years, but a purchase price of $230,000 and the returns dramatically change. And then, you know, from $230,000 to whatever it sold for five or 10 years later, you know, it's like your, your returns can dramatically shrink or dramatically expand about you know from when you get into the market and when you get out of the market and you're going to maximize your returns and maximize your ability to make sure you get the best returns by holding the property for as long as you possibly can um i want to get this statistic up yeah. tony robbins says it in his book money master the game all right so just back obviously on the, the timing versus time in the market so no one can time the market and making sure the in the market for the, the longest period of time is the best way to guarantee returns. So if we look back, this is in the in the share markets. It's exactly the same in property. But if we look back over a 20-year period from 2018 to, or say 2019 to 1999, if you missed the top 10 best trading days in 10 years, so one day a year you were out of the market when you should have been in the market, your overall return halves by not being in the marketplace for those 10 best days. So if you invested $10,000 20 years ago and you got the, so from 1999 to um, 2019, fully invested, which means you never sold out, um, you know, when you originally invested and you got the 20 
20, uh, the 10 best trading days and you're in for 10 years. Your $10,000 investment would have went to $29,845 or a compounding rate of 5.6%. Now, if you were out of the market for the, those 10 days, one day a year, 10 best trading days, your return goes from 29000 down to 14000 Now, let's say you were out of the market on the best 20 days of that 10 years. Your return then goes down to $9,000. The best 30 days, 6000 The best 40 days, 4000 So if you're out of the marketplace on the best 20 days of the last 10 years, your returns go from positive to negative. Your original $10,000 investment is now worth $9,360. Wow. So it just shows the power of not trying to get in and get out and just being in. Because for that example that we were talking about in Leichhardt in the inner west, if that property sells for $1.6 million, I can almost guarantee that within the next 10 years, it's going to be a $3 million plus property. Mm. So that person who buys it at one6 is going to get 100% ROI on their investment. But that same person who bought the property a year prior for 1.9 just lost 20%. Um, so it's a very, very important lesson to just make sure that you're buying assets that you never have to sell and you hold them for as long as you possibly can because if you're in and out in the wrong times, mm. your returns can dramatically shift. So you imagine if you sold out of the property market in 2018, 2019 before we just had a 30% return. Crazy. It would, it would change your asset performance by a huge amount and that you know when we're tracking data now at the moment with when we're looking at locations that we're going to be investing in we exclude the last two years of growth Mm. because the last two years of growth is not relevant because everywhere Mm. done well right and it actually you actually get the wrong read on whether an area is a good area or a bad area because we like consistent performance not no performance ad hoc and then a 30 year because if you're tracking a 10 year data set so you say 10 years worth of data and from 2000 let's just say rough numbers from 2010 to 2018 the area did two percent compounding but then from 2018 to 2020 that area did 40 percent that then makes the whole 10 years look much different right because you're adding that 40 percent growth to the whole 10 years and it makes it look like it might have done 8% 8% year on year. But the reality is it did nothing. And then from an event that was completely outside of anyone's control, we did a lot mm. of growth. So we take the last two years out and we want to go, well, what happened for the 10 to 20 years prior to that when it was a more stable economy in a more normal time without this huge amount of you know monetary printing into the economy? And that gives us the, uh, the data set. So super, super important and super relevant. So thank you for bringing that up before we went through the Q&A. Not a problem. I... Um I also think as well, like what we've seen with those areas that have done 2%, 2%, basically nothing, and then achieved massive results. A lot of those areas have been marketed for investors, um, you know, investment properties, but not investment grade. And I think um, super important to not fall into the trap of buying these areas that go up in the short term, but then of course. don't do much over the long term. Without a doubt. Uh, all right questions so this is a great question um i'm happy to answer this if you don't know the answer mate does afterpay affect getting a loan on your credit this is a great question yes it does so at the moment it's not necessarily impacting your actual credit score even um, if you're servicing though if you've got unless debt. unless the bank statements show the transactions coming out of 
Mm. But if but, you didn't disclose that afterpay debt, then it wouldn't. But if it was disclosed and you could see the transaction, it would. Yeah. It's the same as a credit card, right? If you don't disclose a credit card, it doesn't have an impact either. But if yeah. the bank sees you transferring money to a credit card, it's going to have an impact. Most definitely. That was a good question because um, a lot of people now are using afterpay, um, which is why you should avoid your pers- loans in your personal name or non-income producing debt. Unless it's for a boat. Boats are great. Boat, but boat. yeah, it doesn't currently show up in your credit scoring. Okay. Boats are income producing. If you have a boat and you entertain people on that boat, that is generating revenue for, for a company. So that is an income producing asset. How I <laughs> When you first started, what were the um, books or courses you would recommend for someone first starting out? Um, Building Your Property Empire by Chris Gray, I would read for sure. I would go anything by Conrad Bobbilac. I think his stuff's really good. I've never, before I met you, I had never heard of that guy. Uh, Really? Never. I think he's the best. I'd never, I just never heard of him before before I heard of you and I've never looked at any of your stuff so I'd be interested to know what. It's pretty much the same as, it's, the the good people are are all the same. Yeah. Interesting. Same fundamentals, but he's comes from a finance background and explains. Building your property, uh, sorry, not building your property, but, um, Armchair Guide to Property Investing, I think, is a is a really good one. People should we should read for sure. Um, that's the Property Couch guys. They do a great oh, job. Yeah, they're good. They're good. Um, seminars. I would go to everything and anything, and just like you know, learn, 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 learn. So people like Mark Rolton, you know, it's good to learn that shit. Even yeah, if, mate, it know, is. Does not work for you. It's still good to learn. You know, you should go to all those big names, listen and and take bits and bobs. I went to everything oh, that I so could. Did I. Um, did you go to that DG one as well? Never did the DG instead. I never, no, never no, got. No. I'm, I'm, I'm not into like the big promotions. Like I've never clicked and bought anything through social media. Like I've never clicked mm. on a Facebook ad and like gone through a webinar or anything like that. It was only ever stuff that, um, I don't know. How did I ever get interested? In, I don't know. How I do knew Michael to- Lane who owned Success oh, Resources, yeah. so that was why I went to all the stuff with Gary V and, um. It was interesting though. But yeah, you should read anything and everything. That's what you should read and do. Do everything and then just take bits and bobs and then just follow me on TikTok and that's what that should be your that should be your game plan. Mm. Uh, next question. Should I buy for capital growth or cash flow? I think Capital growth only, don't buy for cash flow. And then only capital growth. And the only reason you do that is because you're getting leverage on your money. Great one. How oh this is a good one as well. Um, how much do I need for my first investment property? Do you think there's a li- like a minimum to be buying into these high growth areas? Five to six hundred grand, I think, is a good budget. At, at a minimum, you somewhere between five to six hundred. Yeah, anything less than that, I would be advising going and doing a joint venture to get yeah. a better quality asset. Three to four hundred, it's yeah, it's not I wouldn't hit the mark. Um, and then for us, where are good places to invest at the moment? It doesn't change. That's, that's the thing, that's right? Thing. That's not. There's never an at the moment. It is forever. We want to buy in areas that will have performed for the last 20 years. So 20 years ago, they would have been great. Today, they're great. They're just more expensive. Um, but it's all relative, right? Because they weren't cheap 20 years ago either. It's relative to the point in time. So Sydney is great. Newcastle is great. The inner ring of Brisbane is great within 5Ks of the CBD. Um, you know, the good pockets of Melbourne are great. The inner ring of Adelaide, I think, can be great. Um, yeah, but that's it. Mm. Not Perth. 
Not Northern Territory, not Tasmania. No? No. <laughs> what about the, uh, what about, this is the question that was coming through as well. Uh, Airbnb, they've seen the Merriweather Airbnb purchase. It's great. Can they duplicate that in, let's say, the Central Coast or areas that are... Yeah, you could do it in Central Coast. Maybe Nelson Bay. Yes. Or areas where it's... Um, you could, you could, you could, yeah. It has to be a destination, that's the thing, right? You can't just go and buy a house in Blacktown. <laughs> and do as an Airbnb, right? Because yeah. it has to be a destination. Why is someone actually want to going to come here? People go to my Airbnb because it's a beautiful, it's got incredible views. It's right in the city of Newcastle. It's walking distance to everything. Um, and because of that, you know, you get a lot of people wanting to come there. So Nelson's Bay, for example, I wouldn't invest there for capital growth, but you could probably get a really high cash flowing Airbnb there because it's a holiday destination. Mm. So people are constantly going there for holidays, fishing, surfing, all that shit. Um you know, places like Byron Bay, you're probably going to do quite well over an Airbnb. You've just got lots of competition. So that's why you want to make sure that your Airbnb is scarce, not just a standard home because then you're just competing on price. If you look in Newcastle, there's not one that competes with mine because it's just nothing that is similar. It's a penthouse. It's really unique, it's beautifully furnished. And then you don't have to compete on price. No, you know. And now, you know, ladies and gentlemen, speaking of that Airbnb, I have to go and do an interview with... Iris Capital as a testimonial. So I'm going to do that. Oh, 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 o